Good morning. I'm going to read Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is the word of God. Thank you, God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Um, we have some things to do this morning, so I don't have a, a silly intro making fun of myself or the Cowboys, but um, we're going to jump right in to Psalm 11. And then um, towards the end of my sermon, we're going to dedicate a portion of our time this morning in prayer, in prayer over a few different things, but primarily we wanted to make space to pray um, for Israel, pray for the church in Israel, pray um, for those who um, are suffering in both Israel and Gaza. And I want to I want to just be clear that we're not only praying for the Israelis, we're also praying for the Palestinians because, um, praise God, there are Palestinian Christians. There's a church in Gaza. There are Palestinians who believe and confess the name of Jesus. And so we're going to pray for both um, Jews and Palestinians, both um, Jews and Muslims. We're going to pray for Israel and Gaza. Um, and so we're going to dedicate some time to that. Uh, but for right now, let's turn to Psalm 11 if you haven't done that already. And I want to just po- point out to us, jump right into the purpose of Psalm 11. Remember that the Psalms encourage and guide us as we pray, hope, and wait. Psalm 11 fits into that purpose. Psalm 11 encourages us to endure every trial as we pray, hope, and wait for God's blessing and refuge. Um, you're probably aware of this by now, but if not, let me just inform you, we cannot hope to escape suffering and trial. We cannot hope to escape affliction. But we can hope to find blessing there. We can endure because we have this hope. We can persevere because we wait for God's promise of blessing. We can endure every trial. We can be long-suffering because God promises to bless us. And what we learn in verse 7 of Psalm 11 is that he promises to bless us with his presence, that we will be with him. And so what we find, um, where we find Psalm 11 in the story of Scripture, in the story of Israel, this is a psalm of David. So remember when it says a psalm of David, we're meant to think on David's story. Now in 1 Samuel, there's many stories that come out of, uh, that. sorry, there's many psalms that come out of stories in 1 Samuel where King Saul is attacking King David. Now why are there two kings in Israel? In the books of Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, what we see is that God Um, Israel wants a king, and they elect King Saul. But back in Deuteronomy, God said, no, that's not how you're supposed to get a king. And he lets it ride out to show them how it turns. 
and why he said that's not how we're supposed to do it. In Deuteronomy, God says, when you want a king like the rest of the nations around you and you don't want me to be your king, I will give you a king, but I will choose him and he will be a man who belongs to me. And so God chose David as king. So the story of Psalm 11 is set into this in-between state where Israel has a king, but they elected him and it's not going well. King Saul is the elected king of Israel, and then King David is God's chosen king, but he's not yet taken the throne. And so um, King Saul, uh, in three ways, has defiled the foundations of the nation of Israel. He's disobeyed God's regulations as king. He has um, defiled the the priesthood by offering um, a false sacrifice. And then he's also turned to another prophet that was not a prophet of God, but a prophet of the nations. And so the the prophecy, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, he has defiled all three, laying waste to the foundations that were set to establish Israel as a nation among the nations, set apart as God's chosen people among the dark powers at work in the rest of the world. And and Saul made friends with those dark powers. And he knew that God had begun to separate his favor and his presence from Saul being king. And he got jealous of David. He knew that God had chosen and anointed David already to take his throne. And so we see multiple times in 1 Samuel that Saul is coming after David. Psalm 11 is written in that storyline. Now, the, the first three verses of Psalm 11 are this retelling of the advice that David got from his anxious friends when they found out that Saul was again coming to kill David. They were sure this time it was going to happen. The foundations of the nation of Israel had been destroyed and defiled, and they knew that Saul would come and eventually find David. And so they tell him, hey, go flee like a bird. Go fly away and hide in your hole in the mountains. They give him bad advice to run away from the inheritance that God has set for him. So let's read uh, verses one through three together. In the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They've fitted their arrow to the string to shoot, at the dark, shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You see, there's this physical conflict between David and Saul that really came out of a spiritual battle. The spiritual battle is between God and the rebellious powers of darkness that work against God and Israel. And so this is, this is a little bit different than like our Marvel movies. Um, this isn't like good versus evil. This is God reigns above it all, but there was uh, some, some rebellious spiritual beings who decided they wanted to take God's place. They wanted the worship of people. They wanted God to not reign above it all anymore. They wanted to reign it. And so um, the way that, that this all goes down is this complicated story that we see unfold throughout Scripture. But the important thing that we need to know is that there are dark spiritual powers that rebelled against God and lured humanity into rebellion with him. Excuse me, against him. <laughs> with them against God. 
So what's happening here in, in the, the story of 1 Samuel, but in Psalm 11, is that we're, we're recognizing that the powers of darkness don't only, um, they don't first want to kill us. They want to discourage us. They want to sow seeds of doubt in us. They want us to distrust God so that when they kill us, we're not on God's side of the battle. So David's friends sow seeds of doubt and, and distrust, not because they themselves are evil, but because they see the wickedness and they're terrified and they're, they're struggling to trust God in the midst of the affliction and the danger. And they're tempting King David to do the same. Now, um, I want to also pause Psalm 11 for a second and, and help us understand our current moment. What's happening between Israel and Hamas, this terrorist group in Gaza, is a physical conflict that is coming out of a spiritual battle that the powers of darkness have, have lured and deluded people to be on their side, rebellion against God, and, and they choose to fight against God and his people. It's a spiritual battle, just like abortion, school shootings, the opiate crisis, just like divisions in churches, this ambiguity that we find from a lot of teachers and preachers around what Scripture actually says regarding important doctrine and biblical issues. But also this itching of the ears when preachers and teachers find themselves giving way, compromising the truth of the gospel in order to win over the approval of people. They fear man over God. These are, these are all physical manifestations of a spiritual battle where the powers of darkness have set themselves against God and his people. But I want to encourage you, while David has every reason to be afraid, because King Saul was a big guy. He was a scary guy. He had weapons. He had soldiers. He had an army behind him. David should be afraid. What I want to encourage you with is why David wasn't afraid. David was not afraid of a man who could kill his body, but not kill his soul. David's fear rests in God alone. And Jesus tells us, encourages us to be like David in this moment. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so when these, um, these moments come to us, when we recognize these global moments of crisis, and it comes even closer to these national moments of crisis, these terrible things, these physical manifestations of the spiritual battle, and even when it comes into our homes, We can trust in the God who controls both body and soul, who promises not death, but life for those who turn to him. The dark spiritual beings that rebelled against God, they will be judged. Psalm 82 says 
that God will kill them. They will die like man dies. They will be judged, and that's good. When it says in Psalm 11 that God hates the wicked and he hates those who love violence, both the the humans who find themselves in rebellion against God, but then also this dark spiritual beings. The reason that's good is because God could not love the righteous unless he hates wickedness. Is it loving for me as a father to let my son be bullied? No, I I hate the, the wickedness that is coming towards my children. Now, God, what we like to do is judge God by human standards. And we think that only bad people hate. But let me just remind you, we don't get to judge God by human standards. God stands on his own standards. And so when it says that God hates the wicked, we should then question ourselves if we have a problem with that, not question God. It is good and right for God to hate those who love violence, to hate the wicked, because he wouldn't be a loving God. These spiritual powers and and the people who tie themselves to these dark spiritual powers will be judged in the last day. And and they know their end. Actually, when Jesus comes to, to cast out demons, And we read it in the story of Mark. The demons cry out to him, I know who you are, son of the most high. Have you come to bring us to our end before the final day? They they actually are then judging Jesus and say, hold on, God said we're gonna die, but it's not time yet. You're early. And that's why he cast them into the pigs. They will be judged, but... Their goal until that day is to fight against God and his people, to sow seeds of doubt and distrust between us and God so that we would die without salvation in Christ. It's what we see happening, like I said, in between Israel and Hamas, but it's also what we see happening to King Saul. They lured King Saul to wanting um, more authority than the bounds of God had, had given him. And so for us who trust in God, for us who claim salvation in the blood of Christ, for us who find refuge in Jesus, we have hope. We can endure the spiritual battle um, because we know that we'll be rewarded. Uh, And it's not only a future reward. It's not only a a second coming reward. It's it's a today reward to endure. Look at what the Apostle James says. He writes um, in his introduction to a suffering church, suffering unlike anything that we've experienced. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Our suffering will not be in vain. And we won't suffer forever. It's a light and momentary affliction. 
there, there's, a, there's a crown on the other side of the finish line. But also there is hope today. There is steadfastness today. That for those of us who long for Jesus to come back, when we endure today, we are given, uh, our faith is strengthened while we wait and while we pray. And so we have hope. And it feels a little bit like, um, man, how can I, how can I hope in, in steadfastness to endure more suffering? Well, Psalm 11 encourages us to endure every trial as we pray, hope, and wait for God's blessing and God's refuge because as we endure today, growing in steadfastness, growing in faith, we are promised that we will make it to the end. And that crown of glory that we're promised is just a little um, a taste of the new life that we're promised in the fullness of the resurrection. And that the suffering will be no more. And so how might we endure? How can we anchor ourselves to truth instead of being swayed by our desires and the temptations of the flesh, the, the attacks of the enemy to pull us into doubting God and distrusting him? What kind of refuge do we have on our deathbeds or at the bedside of our loved ones? What kind of comfort can we find in the loss of a job or a child? Or as, as our mental and physical abilities are deteriorating? Because as we experience suffering and affliction, a lot of times we're going to ask the question, God, where are you? We want to know where God is because he's promised to be with us, hasn't he? He, he's promised us that he's near to the brokenhearted. The Lord is in his holy temple. His throne is in heaven. His eyes see and his eyelids test the children of man. Now why on earth should I be encouraged that God is on his throne in heaven? Um, I think that we struggle to be encouraged by this. I have, in, in my walk with Jesus, I've struggled to be encouraged by even praying our Father in heaven because I've been confused about where heaven actually is. Do we know where heaven actually is? It's not between earth and Mars. It's not out beyond the clouds. God is in heaven. His throne is in heaven, and that's where he sits and where he reigns. And we remember from reading Psalms 1 through 4 that as God sits on his throne in heaven, he's not anxious. And so where is heaven? Well, um, I want to use the story of Israel to help us see this clearly. Uh, in Genesis 12, God promised a man. He picked a man out of humanity, and he said, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And then not many chapters later, when doubt began to creep in, and, and, 
and Abraham, who was chosen by God, began to question and wonder, is this really true? God said, hold on, hold on. The promise remains. And I, in Genesis 26, he says, I will be with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And then in Exodus, God promises to be with Moses in Exodus 3. And as Israel is in the, the tragedy and the terror of slavery, and God promises freedom for them. He makes his presence known with a, a, a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke over the temple. The temple was this symbol of God's presence. The Ark of the Covenant in the temple was this symbol of God's presence. And the reason that it stood as a symbol and not the actual presence of God is because God was already present with Israel. He didn't need the temple. He didn't need the cloud or the fire. We need the cloud and the fire. We need help remembering. And so God led them with his actual presence represented by the cloud and the fire. And then when God established Israel as a nation and he promised them again, I will be with you. My presence will not leave you. He gives them these three pillars, the prophets, the priests, and the kings. And it's all centered around the Ark of the Covenant and the temple that's built on Jerusalem to maintain forever this permanent reminder that God is with his people. That's why when, when Israel gets exiled and the temple's destroyed and they can't find the Ark, there's this anxiety in the people. And they wonder, is God really with us? When, when Israel suffers affliction and battle out of this spiritual war going on, and they wonder, where is God? They remember the song of Psalm 11. The Lord is in his holy temple. He sits on his throne in heaven. God doesn't need a temple. He doesn't need the fire and the smoke. He is with us. And in in the book of Revelation, we are promised that the end of of our salvation, the end of all uh, this, this terrible story that we find ourselves in, of sadness and suffering, when we're brought into the fullness of resurrection, what do we get? We don't get jet packs. We can't, we're not promised to walk on water. Like we see that, that the child will sit with the snake and that's great. But what we really get promised is that God will dwell with his people forever and we shall behold his face. God is here. He is not only with us, but he is among us. He is not just physically present. He's spiritually present. And we say this probably every other week that God prioritizes the spiritual over the physical because it's actually the spiritual that is more real. And our our Western data-driven enlightenment, and there's great things about data and the West and enlightenment. But when we take that to its end, what it does is it teaches us to not look for God in the more real things of the spiritual world, but to deny him because we can't see him physically. His eyelids see, his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. This is a a strange phrase. 
um, parents, your eyelids have tested your children. Like a sculptor squints into his art piece to get the fine details, to shut out everything else and only look at what he's working on, to see the fine details of his creation. What this, what this means in Psalm 11 is that God peers into us, the unseen parts of us, the parts that, that we can't see, the parts that we know are there, but we try to hide. But what makes us most uncomfortable about this, and you're probably feeling that, thinking God sees those unseen parts of me, is that he also sees the wickedness in us. He also sees those things that we, that we try to stuff down and pretend like they're not there. And we try to Christian our way through life and make sure that everybody sees how good we are. But God sees, his eyelids test us. He knows what's deep in us. And so then in, in verses five through seven, when we see that God tests the children of man, and then we see this comparison, the righteous will be punished, or excuse me, the wicked will be punished, the righteous will behold God's face. We're meant to think back on Psalm 1. Psalm 1 and Psalm 11 walk together this path of the wicked and the righteous, showing and illustrating for us what happens when in Psalm 1 God says, God holds the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so knowing that God sits on his throne, knowing that he peers into the deepest parts of us, the unseen parts of us, the wicked parts of us, and knowing that he is a righteous God. There's another way to to translate um, verse seven. It says, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. Another way to translate it is, the righteous God loves righteousness. So if, if, if these things are true, that God is on his throne, that he judges rightly, he loves righteousness, and that he peers into the deepest parts of us, we should be terrified. We should wonder, do we find ourselves in the category of the righteous who will get to behold God's face? And I I just want to break the news to you. No, none of us can do that. Nobody. Nobody. And before you're worried about whether or not the person next to you is listening, I want you to think about yourself. Psalm 4. Be angry and do not sin. Be perturbed by what you find. Sit on your bed and be silent. Look in your hearts. Commune with your hearts and be perturbed by what you find. It's not good in there. And God sees it. And so how how do we find ourselves on the way to righteousness? How do we find ourselves in the category of people who get to behold God's face? Because he doesn't make this promise to, to then find it empty. He knows there's only wickedness in man. He knows that if he makes this promise and he doesn't make up for it, that he's not going to have anyone to behold his face. And so we have hope. 
Let's read Romans 3. 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's on his throne. He peers into the unseen parts of us. But we are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That means that he paid the price that we owed. This, in our sin, we rebelled against God with the spiritual powers. We, like Adam and Eve, said yes to Satan tempting us with our desires. And we became allies of the the dark spiritual powers that rebelled against God. But in Christ, we have a propitiation. There is a judgment. It's good that God would hate the wicked. And if we find ourselves in that category, then we need a way to get to the other side. There's a price to be paid that Jesus paid. He is the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, that this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God will be a just judge but he's already judged his son. So that anxiety and that fear that we feel when we find ourselves as allies with the dark powers, when we find that in us, that wickedness that we try to hide, we we need to know we will be judged. It's hard to say, it's hard to hear. But it's like someone, if they were walking towards a cliff, And I was too afraid to say, hey, you're walking off a cliff. Because that would be bad news. This is the gospel. You will be judged. How will you stand before the God who sits on his throne in heaven? When he promises to rain down coals and fire and scorching winds on the wicked. How will we stand? We won't. It's promised in Psalm 1, the the, the wicked won't stand in the congregation of the righteous. They'll be blown over. You remember in Psalm 3, there is no refuge from God. There is only refuge in God. We turn to Jesus. We we take that wickedness and we, we confess it to him. We say, God, I know this is in me. Repentance isn't only confessing our sin and wanting it put to death. Repentance is also turning to Jesus, trusting that he saves sinners, that he is both a just judge and the justifier. And that because he judged his son on our behalf, he remains just and justifier of those who put faith in him. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, Messiah, Savior of the world, 
Jesus has these titles because his death on the cross became our sin so that we could become his righteousness. In Christ, we become the righteous in Psalm 11. The blessings of Psalm 11 become ours in Christ. And let me tell you, it's not for free. There's times where, where we talk about um, that it's, it's a gift, it's grace, it's something you didn't deserve, and those are all true, but it's not for free. Jesus paid the price. You didn't have to pay anything. But it wasn't free. It's been paid. Scripture encourages us to endure every trial as we pray, hope, and wait for the fullness of the resurrection in Jesus. Because it's not just salvation that Jesus got for us, because he was raised from the dead. And just like we saw, and we know Noah in, in identifying his flesh with the death of Christ, Noah was raised from that water, that hot water, as a way to say that he will be raised in the fullness of life with Christ again. We can endure sufferings because our hope is that they will produce in us greater faith today that will last us to the end. And enduring means waiting. Enduring means waiting. Um, We don't have to endure very much nowadays, do we? We don't have to wait. Um, There are things that we do wait for. I mean more than the six minutes it takes for your frozen dinner to cook. We all wait. We wait for God to bring relief to the people suffering in Israel and in Gaza. We wait for God to bring provision for our needs. We wait for God to heal our loved ones. We wait for God to put an end to abortions and mass shootings and the opiate crisis. We wait for Jesus to come back to bring us into the fullness of his resurrection. And I'll, I'll bring it home personally. I've been waiting for 13 years for my body to be healed of chronic illness. And I know that many of you have been waiting. Many of you wait today. Many of you wait on behalf of a loved one. But the waiting that we endure, that we wait together, is given to us to produce a steadfastness that we would endure to the end as we long for Jesus to come back for us. And I pray that we would love that, he come, that he's coming back for us and that we wait for that day, that we're not, we're not won over by the passions of this age, but we wait eagerly for the coming age. Because we cannot hope to escape affliction, but we can hope to find blessing there. But we wait. And while we wait, we pray. While we pray, we wait. And while we wait, we grow steadfast. And so we're going to pray. 
Um, this is going to transition us into our time together. Um, I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to lead our time praying. Uh, we're not going to have anything on the screens, but I'm going to I'm going to give you prompts. So if you want to journal these, if you want to um, just sit and close your eyes, you can feel free to stay where you are. You can feel free to um, come to the steps and, and kneel and, while we pray. Uh, however you want to do this, we will take a few minutes to pray together. Um, and then I'm going to read Psalm 46, and then we're going we're to finish that time and move into communion. And so um, let, let's pray together for the war in Israel. And as you pray, um, ask God to end the war. Ask God to release the captives. To bring comfort and healing to the victims. To those who are wounded. To those who have lost family members. Ask God to protect the innocent. Would you ask God to use the church in Israel and in Gaza to share the love of Jesus? And would you ask by the power of the Holy Spirit that the church would grow steadfast, that their faith would increase? Now I ask that we pray for our city. Would you pray that Redeemer and the other churches in San Angelo are, are unified? Pray that we would share the love of Jesus with our neighbors. Would you pray that we would remain anchored to the truth and not be swayed by the approval of man or the fear of man, but that we would commit ourselves to the gospel no matter the cost? Would you pray that the church would be strong in the Holy Spirit, that, that the church would be awake in San Angelo and that we would grow and mature and that new followers would come to love and trust Jesus? And now we pray for ourselves. Pray for repentance in your own heart. Ask God to create humility in you. That we would be humble before God and fear Him alone. I ask our Father in heaven for strength by His Holy Spirit to endure suffering, to grow in steadfastness and faith. Ask God to bring his kingdom in me as it is in heaven. That as we pray and sing, Jesus, you reign above it all, that that would be true of our hearts. Ask God for an increased longing for his son to come back for us.
that we pray along with the Apostle John at the end of Revelation 22, the very end of our scriptures. Come, Lord Jesus. God, we humble ourselves before you. And even the humility that we can muster, we know it's incomplete. We know, God, that, that, that our desires are torn, that our loyalty to you is often half-hearted. And so, God, we, we lower ourselves before you this morning, praying that, that there's nothing that, that you must do for us. But we know that you've promised us all spiritual blessings in your son. And so we ask for that to come. God, would you give us more of your grace, more of your mercy? Would you make us aware of your presence? Would you increase our faith in your son that because of him, we will be the upright who get to behold your face? God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room this morning who has not put their faith in you, that they would see that you peer into the wicked parts of their hearts and you offer them a way to find refuge in you. God, would they take that refuge in Jesus? God, would you end the war in Israel and in Gaza? Would you preserve your church in this place? Would you strengthen your, the Christians in this place? Would you bring healing to the wounded? Would you prove yourself worthy of honor and glory by, by using your power to end this war, declaring that you alone are Lord in heaven? You sit on your throne. Would you make yourself known to this region by great and mighty acts to end this war and save your people? But God, we want you to judge the wicked. We want you to put an end to evil. And God, as we wait for you to do this, as you wait to, to bring a resolution to this conflict, God, we continue just to pray that you'd protect the children, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Palestinian, Israeli. God, we pray for people that somehow by some miracle their hearts would be turned to you. There's nothing too big for you, God. Would you protect the vulnerable? Would you protect the poor and the needy? Would you protect the elderly? And God, would you use your church to share the love of Jesus? Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. 
There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Communion is more than a meal. It's a proclamation of our faith in Jesus. And when we take communion, we're declaring that God is on his throne in heaven and he is here with us on earth and that we submit our lives to be a living prayer that his name would be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven, that his kingdom would come to us. And so we receive the body and the blood of Jesus as our salvation and our refuge and we fill our bodies with the righteousness of Jesus and the forgiveness of our wickedness. God hates the wicked and those who love violence. And if he didn't judge the wicked, he couldn't truly love and protect the righteous. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want to encourage you to take this time and consider Jesus. There is no refuge from God. There is only refuge in God. Jesus is your refuge. If you make that decision this morning to find refuge in Christ, please come find me. Come talk to me. Because we want to baptize you. But for those of us who do believe, we take the cup, we take the bread, we eat and we drink, proclaiming the Lord's death and his resurrection until he comes again. And we pray with the Apostle John at the end of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus, amen. Please join me at the table.